Of mortal or immortal race, from the same Mother Earth we trace. Our lives, but not the same degree, of power and vital energy. To man of transient space is given, as in the brazen soil of heaven. Yet some resemblance can we find of nature or the mighty mind that links us to the power divine. However, tis not in us to know when shall stern fate's recorded blow by day or night our course define. This episode is dedicated to the brave men and women defending liberty everywhere. To the free people of Ukraine, glory in liberty. To the tyrants, only the grave. Hi, this is Joseph. I'm here with Isaac. Hi, Isaac. Hi, Joseph. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to have you here in the studio, in Studio B. For, thanks as well for our listeners uh, clocking in to our so far audio show. And this is episode six of it. Um, for an audio show, we do rely a lot on visual aids. So we appreciate if you saw our thumbnail today that demonstrates what our show will be all about. Well, let me just give you the title though first. Agony and Agora, how the Greeks prove they are better than you. If that didn't get your attention, nothing will. The Greeks are the best. Now, what is our what is our art for today and why is that important and how can we launch our conversation based on this? Tell us about it, Isaac. Well, I want you to think about this scene. It's, um, it's Olympia, the greatest uh, holy sites in all of ancient Greeks. And in the arena, in front, in front of thousands of thousands of uh, of visitors and spectators from all over Greece, there are two men. They are naked. They are covered only in olive oil. They and they they are wearing leather gloves. Well, gloves is a is is a very generous description. It's more like um, leather. Stripes, which they like wrappings, which which they wrapped. Thank you, which they wrapped around their hands to so, not so much to soften the blows that they land on the on the rivals, but to soften the the damage to the to the bone structures and knuckles, and they fight and they punch each other, uh, with in every possible place. It doesn't matter where, and the goal finally one of them covered with blood and uh, and exhausted stumbles and falls to the ground then something amazing happened a woman clad in a chiton which is uh the greek the classic greek uh garment and crowned with the and crowned with and crowned with the uh with the tiara of victory and winged comes down from the heavens and crowns the victor who is as a matter of fact a head taller than the goddess that's what uh, our piece of art for today 
um, is describing. It's a, it's a vase, a, a Greek vase, an Athenian black figure vase depicting Nike, the goddess of victory, crowns the winner of a boxing match. And this is the price for, I'm sorry, it's not a, an Olympic prize, it's a prize for the Panathenaic game, games. Uh, and it was created around um, 363 to 362 BC. So it's a relatively late piece, but it still conveys the basic idea that distinguished Greeks from all the, other, from all the world. And this idea was not freedom, not democracy, because again, the Greeks hold extensive amounts of, uh, of slaves and Greek people are enslaved inside of Greece. And democracy is actually a very peculiar form of government, which is not common, at least not the beginning of the, of the classical era. And it becomes less and less common as much as uh, the more we advance. But the basic idea is agon. Agon, which is the base for the modern English word agony, means competition, strife. Odysseus, for example, is described by Homer as agonistos, uh, a striver. And here's another peculiar thing about this piece. We mentioned that the, uh, that the, uh, that the boxer is a head taller on the piece than, uh, than the goddess. This is significant. In the uh, in Near Eastern in figures, the way you convey that one figure represents a god and one figure represents a man is that the man who usually gives something to the gods is smaller and less clearly drawn than the god. But on this piece, the, uh, the boxer is just as tall and just as beautifully drawn as Nike and Zeus, which are crowning him and hailing him, not the other way around. Zeus is the figure on the side with the hand extended? Yes, he's saluting the victor. The victor, on the other hand, is holding the, uh, the marks of victory, his, uh, his leather stripes that he's, that he's unfolding after the fight. And what is the significance of the fighter being well-drawn and not uh, shrunk? It means, that, it means that while the gods are more excellent... Remember this word, excellent. Then, the uh, then then the boxer, by virtue of being gods, still the 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 excellence of the boxer, the victor, the human victor, and the gods is comparable because just as the gods are excellent because they are simply better, and this is an observable fact. If you could see Zeus, you would agree that he's better than anything else, then, the sa in the same manner, this boxer is better than the other boxer. As a matter of fact, he's better than all the other bo human boxers participating in the games this day. Could Therefore, you have a uh, merit-based games, you know, a level playing field, Yes, metaphorically and literally, and he demonstrated that he is better in this or that. And uh, it was level. observed by all the spectators and the, and, and the referees and the judges that came from all over uh, the Athenian dominions to participate and see what is the best of the best that Athens could produce. So you're making an interesting philosophical point. And 
Although we mostly talk history in the podcast, we use that as a catalyst to discuss the history, the philosophy of history, which is why our show is called The Iron Rod, because we're discussing, for example, in The Iron Rod case, uh, tyranny as seen through tires throughout history. So we discuss, in this case, the history of Greece and, and Athens and so on, and we try to understand certain, uh, you know, thinking ideas that we could kind of glean from it. And you're making the point that the significant idea in this early time in Greece is not freedom and not other things, which you kind of poo-pooed, but this competition or this merit-based system. Are you in fact saying that? I, I'm in fact saying that because before we can say uh, men should, what men ought to be, we must say what men is. The Akkadian peoples, uh, the, the Mesopotamian and Egyptian peoples say, said, men is significantly lesser than the gods, therefore he must live and die in the service of the god, in the gods and the representatives of er on earth. Um, the Greeks said, no, men is, might be lesser than the gods by virtue of being a man and not a god, but man is also somewhat comparable to the gods because just as the gods have excellence and merit so does man have excellence and merit and the excellence and merit of the gods and of gods and men are both observable from the outside therefore they could say men should be free and even uh, critics of the idea that men should be free those who said not all men should be free they would say because those men they would say excellent men should be free. Hmm, hmm, that's very fascinating. That does remind me of Plato, but we'll perhaps get to that later in this episode or in a different episode. Mm -hmm. We talk about Plato's golden men and, and silver men and so on. But this is an amazing idea, and let's dwell on this a bit longer. So although it is you know, possible that you know, some man in Acadia or Egypt or even a, a cave dweller or a hunter-gatherer had some of these ideas or even spoke about it with his pals around the bonfire, Mm -hmm. But no, correct me if I'm wrong, no one really um, wrote it down and, and lived it and embodied it in the history of the world until the Greeks came about. So they're the first ones to put this into action. Absolutely. And that's because uh, men have a perverse nature by which we cannot admit that other people are better than us. We always find the excuses. Oh, this guy can, uh, can run faster than me. So what? I can lift uh, things heavier than he can. Um, this man is uh, smarter than me. No, he's not actually smarter than me. He is more book smart, but I'm more street smart. I, I'm sorry I, I have to, to bring this up, but yes, the street smarts is, a, is, not, is, not a th is not a thing, is not a worthy category. Yes, but don't look at me so strongly, Isaac, when you say I'm that. Not looking no. at, I'm not looking at you. <laughs> I'm not looking at you. Inside studio joke here. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so this, is a, this is a fascinating idea. So, and I think you're saying that this is perhaps a precondition for coming up with the idea of freedom as well. Yes, absolutely. Because if man has merit, an independent merit, individual merit, men should not, be, should not live in service to other men or to, something, or to anything else. You can say that they should serve other men, or, or the gods, or some abstract idea, or the state. But you cannot say that the goal of human existence is 
to provide nourishment to the gods because human life is so much because if so why is human life so much more beautiful and perfect and variable that's wonderful that's wonderful and that that's perhaps if if perhaps if this was the only thing they accomplished it would be enough to justify the title of our episode this is episode 6 of the iron rod podcast if you're just tuning in now and the title is how the greeks prove they are better than you because this is in fact is such a wonderful idea and you know the greek civilization as we're describing it begins around 2800 2900 years ago but we're talking as late as 2000 you know 300 uh, you know 50 or 2400 bc in a way what we have the west as we all know and love it is a product of greece because um think about the sats what is the goal of the sats to see which high school students are the best and deserve to get assistance and acceptance into the best schools now we didn't devise yet uh, an effective way to measure wh- which schools are the best and but and college rankings are bullshit excuse my french but uh but the sats are not the for example at least based on the idea that certain students are better than others Mm. Of, course, of course, there are ideas, of course, of course, there's, therefore they deserve more things than other students. Now, of course, I know, I know, I know all the tricks around, I know private tutoring and, and cramming and all this. It doesn't, but the basic idea is a very Greek idea. It's not unlike the Chinese idea in which, uh, in which uh, government positions were handed out to those who, having the best marks in the in the in the government uh, exams but that's a different ethic that was a ma- that was a matter of uh, not finding the the mandarins this was not based on the idea that the mandarins are the best in society it was based that they, they are the best for government service but that's besides besides the point we can we can deal with with ancient china later with well, imperial china later it is amazing that we managed to sneak in ancient china two weeks in a row so hopefully we're not making um a habit of this although well, china it's, is always it's in the, our minds it, well it's the other great civilization yes but it is not ours and i think people well it might be almost gloss over this that if you live in the west today or even if you live anywhere in the world you are really inheriting this Western tradition and civilization even if you live that in, b- starts with Greece. Even if you live in Eastern Asia, Eastern Asia is an incredibly Greek place nowadays. Yeah, no question. So uh, let us then describe this ancient Greece uh, in other ways. What else, what else did the Greeks perhaps uh, invent that you think our audience should know just from the get-go? Do you have some different ideas for example that the greeks invented democracy well define democracy well so you know in athens for example and you know socrates used to make fun of this that uh they took it to the extreme to the point that they're not appointing the generals based on merit and how to fight but rather based on some democratic notion yes but the idea that everybody gets into a room and votes Yes. Or the substantial people go into a room and votes. Yes. This is not found anywhere else in the world. Well, as we will see in the Germanic and Judaic episodes, which are forthcoming, uh, it's not accurate. 
I wish it was, but it's not accurate. The idea of government by vote is really, really not unique to, to ancient Greece and not original to them. But we can we can see it in various other forms of government. But I mm. agree with you. But that in Greece it's have a different flavor, because in Greece the idea all voting, uh, all polit. I would say that the Greeks invented politics as we know it. Politics as a kind of striving, as a striving enterprise, as politicians getting into the arena, presenting their ideas and themselves and uh, and commenting over who can who is best at convincing the uh, the citizenry that their ideas are that either they are the best politicians the best statesmen and therefore should be relied upon or that their ideas are the best ideas and therefore should be uh, should be acted upon that's fascinating and I think you alluded to this, along with starting modern politics, you, they started all the foibles and all the inanities associated thereof. Oh, absolutely, because one way to do, to, do, to do it is, of course, by telling everyone how good you are and how good your ideas are, but another way is simply starting to slander your, your, your opponent. Or bribing the population. Even, of course. Even, uh, I think, um, the object of fascination and one of the great men who um, is in some ways a poster child for, for Athens and therefore for Greece. Pericles was not beyond uh, entertaining the population, bribing them, uh, stealing money from the, the rich or from the priests, uh, the, the, for example, the oracle's money and just seizing it and bringing it to Athens and so on and yeah, so forth. That's, a, that's an interesting thing. Uh, Pericles would not see it, we at least want to describe it in such ugly words. He would say, "I am, uh, I am the best citizen around because I give the best shows around. That's part of. I am very, very aware of my civic duties as a rich and uh, an honorable Athenian aristocrat. and uh, and I use my power, influence, and riches to, uh, to honor the city and the gods by putting on the best plays and the best shows and and, and the best." And giving out the best feasts, he won't use such uh, ugly words as bribing. That's something the Romans would do because the Romans, uh, because the Romans invented something else very important, which is, um, what should I say? It? Uh, frankness, I would say. The Romans didn't were not politically correct people. They they did not believe. They did not mince words. But that's uh, but the Romans are not the topic of today. Yes, and but and the Greeks were, and it's interesting how um, many of the issues and m many of the phenomena that ancient Greece as a city-state, uh, dealing with, for example, loyalty and treason, uh, two and a half thousand, three thousand years ago, still exist today. So everyone saw the news, for example, and uh, we're although we discuss history in our show, we're not. Uh, blind to the realities of the current war, there is an there has been an invasion of uh, the sovereign state of Ukraine by the military of Russia, and our show and this episode is dedicated uh, for the stalwart defenders of Ukraine fighting the Russian hordes, and um, this this sort of thing would have been very recognizable to the Athenians. The fact that Zelensky decided to ban 
the parties that are kind of treasonous and that they're favorably disposed towards Russia. They did this, uh, I believe, yesterday or today. Yeah, the, all the, all the declare, all the all the po- political parties that out outright said that Ukraine should be part of the Russian Federation or at least a client state of Russia are uh, essentially banned or at least deprived of faction status, which has various and meaning. A, and a lot of, you know, kind of our effete Westerners are a little bit scandalized by this. And I don't want to... I only bring this by way of reference. By the way, it doesn't mean that, uh, that Zelensky's secret police are going door-to-door arresting but may- uh, or, or party members. May- but maybe they should. Maybe they should. No, but, the... the, the, the uh, every one of the... I mean, the head of one of the parties he, for example, prescribed, you know, that guy's daughter was a goddaughter from Vladimir Putin. Yes. So th- these people are, are, many of them are traitors to the, to the sovereign state. Well, but we, the, the point is, is that past is, is present and the future. And that there's very few new political phenomena and phenomena in general. Mm-hmm. And the things that we see today, we saw in ancient Greece. And this is why it's so important and instructive mm-hmm. for us to look at ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. And one of the things is that all these shiny uh, baubles that Athens and Greece generally had, and all the amazing ideas and accomplishments on a civilizational level that they managed to attain uh, was only being protected by military might. Yes. And, for example, one of the shocking uh, statistics that I always saw floating around that is always worth mentioning and should be mentioned again in the future is that uh, during some of the Persian invasions of Greece, which is a very significant um, you know, geopolitical events, you know, up to 90% of the city-states in Greece were neutral or sided with the Persians. Including, including one of the most ancient and, uh, and honored ones, which was Thebes, which Athens always regarded as some sort of, uh, of, uh, of an elder state to itself, because Thebes and Athens are one of those, uh, one of the two, uh, are the two autochthonic states, which means we discussed in the previous episode the Bronze Age collapse and how the Mycenaean culture, civilization collapsed. So, um, out of the all, all the old Mycenaean settlements, Thebes and Athens were some of the most significant ones that were not overrun by invaders, that actually remained in place. So, Athens had a tremendous amount of respect for Thebes. That's actually reflected in the fact that much of, uh, of the Athenian drama takes place in Thebes or in ancient Thebes. And... And Edip, for example, the the Oedipus trilogy, and uh, and and so and, and, and so we'll on. Have to get to and, Oedipus. And Thebes, and Thebes, or at least aristocratic Thebes, largely sided with the Persians. And one of the greatest poets of uh, of ancient Greeks, uh, Pindaros or Pindar, uh, actually was among the young people who did not want to sail with the Persians and, and, and fled to the Athenian-dominated city of Aegina in the, uh, in the Bay of Salamis. And Fascinating. So, so just to give... Are we able to do this on this next segment? Just to give our audience an um, a introduction to the warfare that was necessary, uh, we have a trailer, and I'm hoping to try to play it and opening to the next segment, we have a trailer from the movie. Now, this is the 300 Sparta movie, 1962. So this is not the famous 300 uh, 
Spartan movie from 2010, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the older one, but I thought it was very interesting. And if all goes well, if all goes well, we will try to play it. Uh, we will try to insert it into the show notes. I don't think we could do it right now, Isaac. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's important to remember something else. Let's tie it, uh, this segment again to Agon. All Greek uh, intercity, intercity state, uh, interstate uh, politics, what we might call international, even though it's kind of weird word to use in terms of ancient Greece, all the internal competition within Greece between the various city state is also an agon. It's a, a stri- it's striving to uh, it's striving to find out which city is the best and should be the hegemon of all the others. And when the Thebes, the Thebians, sided with the Persians, all the Greeks were terribly disappointed. Because the Thebians clearly were not as excellent as they thought. Because they submitted to the Persian. And we will discuss more on that topic next segment. And I will play the trailer in a moment. segment of our episode on ancient Greece this is episode six and we're in our mini series on the roots of liberty we're talking about the roots of liberty that we see in ancient Greece uh, we you just heard a movie trailer old movie trailer this is 1962 the 300 Spartans and you heard about the Spartans hoarding off holding off the hordes of Persian uh, troops at the Battle of Thermopylae to give a perspective, Thermopylae is 480 BC. That's around 100 years before the painting that we discussed in the first segment. Make sure to either see that painting in the uh, show notes or to Google it. Uh, goddess, the Goddess of Victory crowning the boxing match. So you understand what we were talking about in the first segment of our episode. And right now you heard the trailer where they talked about the Spartans holding off uh, the Persian hordes. 
and the um, which actually leads us to one of the quotes that we prepared. Uh, the most significant part about this battle was that the Greeks, aka the Spartans, were massively outnumbered. Uh, there was maybe 300 Spartans and some other Greeks holding, you know, who accompanied them, and there are millions of Persians, maybe hundreds of thousands. Maybe, Nobody actually knows. Maybe two million, according to Herodotus. There's a lot. Um, and the, the Spartans ultimately didn't win. So Euripides' line about 10 soldiers wisely led will beat 100 without a head didn't exactly apply because they didn't have 10 to 1 odds. It was much more severe than that. And speaking about a subject that we brought up in the first segment, um, treason to the polity and to Greece in general, the Persians were allowed in uh, to the backside and defeated the Spartans by a, you know, a Greek and Spartan trader who allowed them to bypass the very narrow defenses that the Spartans had set up and that utterly defeated them. As a result, all 300 Spartans, with one exception, were defeated. I will speak about the Spartans again, but uh, perhaps you could give us a more basic understanding. We, spe- we spoke about Sparta as being one place. We spoke before about Athens. Our audience might get the distinct impression that Greece is not a homogeneous empire the way we spoke about ancient Egypt, the Bronze Age, Bronze Age civilization or the other Bronze Age civilizations in Mesopotamia. So tell us what sort of civilization, what sort of political entity are we seeing in Greece? Well, the most important institution in Greece is the, uh, is the polis. Now, the polis is something combining a nation, a tribe, a city, and, uh, and a state. Now, what does that mean? It means that this... Uh, first, first of all, let's th- think about Athens. The name of Athens in Greece, in Greek, it's not Athens. It's not the name of a place. It's Athenii. The Athenians. So, basically, you have, a pl- you have a city that's not named, this is the place called Athens. Therefore, everybody who lives here uh, Athenians. No, we are the Athenians, and that's the name of our city. This is the city of the Athenians. So, this idea of uh, of uh, of group identity, which is total. You are an Athenian. It means you are wholly Athenian. Of course, you are also a Greek. You are also other thing. You are also an Ionian or an Aeolian if, in an early iteration of this tribal identity. But uh, it means many. You are many things, but politically, and in religiously, and in many other things, you are an Athenian. And if let's say the Athenians would have to pack everything up and go on ships, and go to some distant shore and build them their their lives again anew, they are not building a new state. It's the same state. It just changed location. Um, as a matter of fact, during the Persian invasion. They thought about doing just that. The Persians famously captured the city of Athens, which was left empty, apart from some defend for, for some defenders, because all the Athenian citizenry went on the sh- on the on their ships, the wooden walls as as they call them, and and fled to to the bay of Sa- of Salamis, and they thought that if they won't manage to regain the the home sea, the homeland. They'll just go somewhere else and settle there. So this is fascinating that, you know, nations are generally speaking 
described in, in two fashions, which are connected, but have you know an interesting connection based on the situation. That is blood and soil. Mm-hmm. Blood being the tribe, the the racial element that connects all the different members of a giant clan. It's bigger than a clan. A clan would just be a giant family, and this is like a super clan. And the soil is the actual dirt under your ground that your ancestors. Geog- geography. We all living within this uh, the boundaries of this geographical unit. Therefore, we are all belong to whatever state control this geographical unit. And a, a, a people, some people could survive a long time as a distinct people, without without having the soil underneath them. You know, mm-hmm. looking at the Kurds or the Jews or the Gypsies and so on. Um, and you know, sometimes they can't, depending on the situation. Uh, but it's definitely one of the two aspects that make up a nation. So the Athenians are. You're saying first and foremost, the people. They're first and foremost, the blood. And the soil is almost a secondary consideration. And it came, and it's actually very interesting because Athenians did not, in the most ancient period, Athenians did marry outside of the, especially aristocratic Athenians, did marry outside. For example, uh, we mentioned the famous poet Pindaros. He was technically a descendant of one of the a legendary ancient kings of Athens, Aegeus. He was an Aguilade uh, by, by descent, but he was a citizen of Thebes because one of his uh, his great 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 mother or great 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 father married into some noble Theban house, Theban house. But he did not consider himself an Athenian, so it's not exactly a blood element. The, at the beginning, this the blood element is not really... It's a bit more fuzzy. By the time we get to the age of Pericles, Pericles actually passes a law that make that, that make sure that only citizens who's both... That only children born to a citizen and a daughter of a citizen uh, can be become a citizen of Athens. Everyone born for mixed marriage is not a citizen of Athens, which actually... Ends up causing great headache for Pericles because his child, his own children, uh, are not are not a, pro, a, a product of a, of a pure Athenian marriage, and he has to actually go to the assembly and ask for an exception from the law that he himself suggested to the assembly a few years back before after his pure-born uh, ch- uh, sons were were killed in action. But uh, that's besides the point. It's it's fascinating that we're here stressing the tribal aspect of Athens, and it's it's an irony, because I would say, and perhaps you'd agree, that Athens is at this point the most beautiful city in the world, uh, bar none, and and so therefore, if you if, if there's ever a place that you would actually want to defend the actual real estate, you know, it's not like you could pick yourself up. There are the actual beautiful buildings and the columns and. And so on and so forth, you know. Um, th- that would be Athens, uh, and in fact, uh, just to uh, introduce a, a co- topic that maybe you could uh, comment on more, the two most famous city states, and this is like you said, a city, and there's a, a, a civilization around the city. They often have the surrounding farmland, so they could have that hybrid of of, of, of city life plus the farming that would actually support them, although Athens was, was pretty terrible at this, they had to import grain. Um, but um, the two most famous are Athens and Sparta, which are very, very different, 
Uh, Sparta, you know, you could imagine them moving on because, you know, they're completely martial and it's all about the actual citizens. It's all about the blood flowing through them. Um, Athens has the beautiful buildings. Um, and these are the two most famous cities. Perhaps you could comment on this and tell us about other famous city-states and why they're significant to think about. Well, we have uh, Argos, which is the... Uh... It's not exactly the successor state to Mycenae, to the to the primary city of the Mycenaean civilization and empire, but because it's because the dwellers are not descended from the Mycenaeans, the dwellers are Doric Greeks who destroyed the Mycenaean civilizations and conquered the place. But and they live and their city is actually slightly removed from Mycenae. But the Argives, as the dwellers of Argos are called are very proud. For a very long time, they were the most important Doric city uh, in, uh, in the Peloponnese and therefore the most important city in Greece. Um, and, and they have this, and uh, to a degree, actually Homer, one of the names that he gives to all the Greeks is Argives, because they were led by the, by, by, by the Argives. Uh, you have Corinth, which is uh, which for a very long time was the primary harbor of Greece because it sits right in the north of the Peloponnese on the isthmus, which is the land bridge between the Peloponnese and uh, and mainland and mainland Greece. It's also of Doric descent, even though they have a lot of Ionian blood going around. It's not uh, one of those cities in which blood is the most important thing, but they they are they are a very commercial hub. They're a great commercial hub. They're a great uh, sea, that, uh, sea-going uh, nation. And famously, Jason and the Argonauts set out, from, set out from, the, from, the, from Corinth. And that's where they come back. And as a matter of fact, the Corinthians keep around the ship of uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Argo, the ship of J- uh, Jason's ship. Uh, in... in uh, and they, from time to time, they replace this rotten plank and this uh, old rope. Hence, the the ancient riddle about uh, about uh, the about Jason's ship. Is it still Jason's ship if all if all the planks and all the and and all the the le- and all the lines and all the lanes were replaced? Uh, yes. And this show, we promise philosophy and we deliver philosophy. So think about that when you're trying to fall asleep. Is it the same ship? Uh, what other city states? Uh, or worthy of mention. We have Thebes, which is one of the remainders of Mycenae civilization, but of course it's changed a lot since the fall of Mycenae civilization, just like Athens. It was greatly influenced by Doric institutions. You have Olympia, which is the uh, which originally was a Doric site, but then became a Pan-Hellenic site, holy site, because again, all the other uh, uh, the Boeotians, which is what we call we call the tribe. Uh, Living, whose main city is Thebes, and the uh, and and the Ionians and Aeolians and all the other Greek tribes eventually came to embrace the Doric way of worshiping the gods that uh, that the 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 old uh, the old and the new, and uh, and you have Dodona, which is the uh, which is again a Doric site in which people uh, predict the future and the will of the gods. By and particularly of Zeus, by uh, by watching the movement of the oak trees of uh, of the of the sacred oak grove, and you have of course Delphi, 
uh, an interesting name because Delphoi means brothers. And of course, the Oracle of Delphoi, again, a Doric institution, which means more related to Sparta, etc. But all the Greeks come to rely on it. And so that's interesting because they, they were somewhere in this oracle, which I think believe it to be a, a virgin lady of, of, of some fashion, right? Or at least theoretically virgin. Uh, she's, you know, being consulted about the will of the gods. So in the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, which is this massive war, the greatest war ever uh, between uh, the Greeks uh, in, in Sparta and their allies and Athens and their allies, and which culminates in a Spartan victory. So at the beginning of the war, the, the oracle is neutral on the subject of who's going to win the war. Mm-hmm. But towards the end of the war, they say Sparta is going to win. And they yes. do win. And so they, they were able to read the tea leaves. Yes, but actually, as a matter of fact, it was famous that, uh, that the oracle of Delphoi is, tends to be on the side of the Spartans. Uh, nobody's sure why. I suspect because, uh, again, it was, a, it was a very dork institution, but uh, that's besides the point. You have, on the other hand, if you want to talk about an Ionian institution, which is more under the influence of Athens, you have the island of Delos, which is sacred to the, which is like Delphoi, it's sacred to Apollo, but it's also sacred to his twin sister, Artemis, because that's the purported birthing place. And as a matter of fact, Delos is so sacred that nobody is allowed to die or be born there. No human being is allowed to die or be born on Delos. So whenever a, a woman needs to enters into labor or when an old man is about to die they would uh, put them on a boat and and row as fast as they can <laughs> away from the shore so uh so yes and this is a sacred place to all the ionians uh relatives of the athenians and what so just to clarify to your audience um to simplify ionians are connected to athens and they're Let's just say a race of people of invaders who uh, actually, swept to Greece. Actually, and the Dorians are with Sparta. Yes, and and actually the Dorians are more of uh, are, are the are the newcomer invaders. The Ionians claim that they are autochtonic, which means uh, native to uh, Greece and particularly to to Attica, and that they and they are settling all across the 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 eastern shore of the Aegean on a on the western coast of Asia Minor. Or as we know it now, Turkey, and uh, and there and and henceforth the just to explain to our audience, so you know Greece itself is partially an idea, partially a geographical location. So the Greek city states in Turkey in Asia Minor are part of this of Hellas, let's say, uh, culturally, philosophically, and so on and so forth. Because they descend from Greek people who colonized this, and and colonization is a big thing in. In, in a certain point in Greek history, uh, up until the Rome, the Roman conquest, as a matter of fact, they in those in those colonies, it's not rare to have mixed colonies, with, in which uh, people from various cities come together and they become citizens of the new city. But the the idea is that the citizens of a colony of a colonial city, they are not citizens of the 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 mother city, but the mother city or the metropolis, as you may call it have some uh, responsibilities towards the, the daughter cities. Interesting. And that's perhaps a conversation for another time. Yes. Because I'm thinking about what Aristotle says about when you had multiple colonies, colonists in the same place, how uh, they didn't necessarily 
uh, work out for the peace and tranquility, and, and one side would expel the other or massacre them, and so on. But sometimes it, it worked. But sometimes it worked very well, and sometimes the colony actually actually sided uh, with uh, uh, with the rival of its of its mother city uh, against its mother city. Mm. That's actually what was one of the things that triggered the Peloponnesian War, because one of the Corinthian, because Corcyra, a Corinthian colony, uh, wanted to side with. Uh, uh, with the Athenians against Corinth. Yes, um, but I, I, I think we're not going to stress the uh, Peloponnesian War in this episode, rather the uh, Persian invasions. And we had ready for you one clip for the movie trailer, The 300 Spartans. Tell us about our other clip, this other movie. Have you seen the movie 300, uh, the famous movie? The Zack Snyder one. Yes. Yeah, unlike what you what he would have you believed, um, Xerxes was not bold and clean shaven. Who is Xerxes? Xerxes, the king of Persia, obviously son of Darius, and uh, who attacked who attacked Greece at four uh, AD, I believe, and um, and as a matter of fact, if he no king of Persia could be caught dead, clean shaven, that'll be a great shame in the in the Near East. Uh, I'm I'm beginning to see with see a theme because we mentioned this last episode. I did manage to find a uh, part of it. Let me see if I could bring up the clip that I have in mind. Uh, and the clip that's described in the video that I'm going to try to see if I could play for our audience. That in fact is more or less what happened. Uh, yes, I can confirm. I can confirm it as a matter of fact, because that's one of the few things that actually. Are visually accurate not in terms well he doesn't well let's hear it let's leave let, let's hear it okay uh, I believe we have it uh, for you now uh, let me see if I could find it and so this is uh, the Spartans the indisputably at this point the most martial uh, fighting men of Greece are being approached by a Persian envoy wants them to pay homage to the Persians and surrender their freedom by giving him earth and water. And let's see if we could play it now. A token of Sparta's submission to the will of Xerxes. Submission. Well, that's a bit of a problem. Madman. You're a madman. Earth and water. Well, you'll find plenty of both down there. No man. Persian or Greek, no man threatens a messenger. You bring the crowns and heads of conquered kings to my city steps. You insult my queen. You threaten my people with slavery and death. Oh, I've chosen my words carefully, Persian. Perhaps you should have done the same. This is blasphemy. This is madness. Well, actually, the most accurate thing that he, is that he, they just say, "Oh, you want earth and water? Here, 
and they push them down the well. So, uh, no, a, a, spa, a good Spartan would not waste so many words because one of the things the Spartans are very proud of is their laconic way of, th of thinking. That's then laconic, of course, means somebody who comes from Laconia or from Lacadaemon, which is what they call their land uh, and, and, of course, themselves. And the thing is, why they cultivate this type of speech and this type of witticism, the ability to say things in, in very short words, because they are martial people. They need to convey orders in the heat of battle very quickly. So they know how to get to the point. Exactly. And since we got to the point, let's see you again on the other side. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Hi, this is Joseph again with Isaac, and we're finishing. Are we in episode six? Yes, we are. Okay, I'm glad we made it this far. I had no doubts. This is the Iron Rod podcast. We have run the race, as you can see, and this is not the end of the race, obviously. Yes, and we haven't even talked about the Battle of the Marathon. A different time, uh, where the term marathon and where races became popular. Um, we just heard the clip of the film 300 and we talked about sparta uh any final words on sparta and their way of life the spartan way of life was very human but not very humane it was based on the subjugation of the helots the helots were the original inhabitants of uh of lacadaimon which is the land to this in the south of the peloponnese where sparta is situated um and in reducing them to uh, to slavery, essentially, and the uh, the basic idea was, and not that the Spartan citizen had a much easier life. The Spartan citizen lived, was born, lived, and died as part of a constant agon with his peers to become to show that he is the best soldiers soldier possible, and. To become the best soldier, and by the way, many, many Spartan children were did not survive uh, the first few hours of the childbirth because the weak children were exposed. It was not, uh, well, it was not exactly a unique thing to Sparta, but in Sparta it was much, much more pronounced because it's that was that a child that was sickly was exposed or a female child was exposed. Actually, Spartans tend to expose less females because female because. Uh, inheritance in Sparta was done through the female line, that and that's why women were ac actually enjoyed a greater status in Sparta than in Athens. Uh, but uh, if a child was not, if a male child was not strong enough, did not seem strong enough to be to grow up for a soldier or a female child, did not grow, did not seem to be strong enough to be, to grow up, to be able to grow up and bear children, the, uh, and bear strong children, she would die. She would be left to die, or and when they grew up, um, the, uh, the 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 females w were under very similar uh, regime or igoga 
in terms of uh, which is a word for education or training to the to the male children because the Spartans believe that strong mothers make strong sons. I don't know how accurate it is medically, but you know. Um, uh, allow me to uh, interject and say that this is actually a controversy between Plato and Aristotle as to whether the women in Sparta were hedonistically enthralled in the in in their luxury and luxurious lifestyle or not. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so Aristotle takes the view that they were completely decadent and in fact undermining society as a result and Plato takes a view consistent to what you just described. Well, Plato, remember, remember that Aristotle saw Sparta only after it was degraded after the Thirty Years' War, after basically the, the Spartan way of life started decaying. Plato already... Plato still was of the generation that saw Sparta, the Spartans marching on Athens in their full glory and might. And under... To, to remind the audience, Plato lived during the war we just mentioned, the Peloponnesian War. Yes, he was a young man back then. He was one of the youngest disciples of Socrates. But, uh, but yes, he, and he actually saw Spartans living as they should live, a- a- according to their own constitution. And It can be added to this, by the way, that... Plato's Republic, um, which it has been averred would succeed in winning wars and in feeding the population because it would be orderly and it would be prudent and so on, accomplishes the two things that Plato feels that Athens lacked in the beginning of his life. Athens loses the war and Plato is living in a besieged city of, of Athens that is not eating enough. Mm-hmm. So this is... W- why the Peloponnesian War has a significant effect on, on Plato's thinking and then on his political philosophy. But he has a lot of... Uh, but he has uh, some critique for, uh, for, for Sparta as well. He can see that Sparta is decaying. The, the Spartan order is decaying and it's not based on anything uh, logical because the helots are not kept uh, as serfs because they are worse than the Spartans. It's... Uh, it's just that the Spartans uh, seems to think that they are more excellent than the Helots. Therefore, they have a justification to, to subjugate the Helots. In his city, you can be, your father can be, this, uh, can be a, a bronze man, or in other words, somebody who is, who is an artisan or, or, or a serf, but you can, might be born with the golden element in your soul, which means you, that makes you one of the philosopher kings. So he is trying to find out how do you measure, how do you create an agon of true excellence, the excellence of the soul, the excellence of the mind? And it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, so, uh, so he actually doesn't have a good answer for it. He just says that if we could determine the excellence of the soul, then this is the best excellence. This is what should really determine who should rule society. Uh, but back to Sparta, nothing, as a Spartan, nothing is nothing when you grow up nothing is uh guaranteed to you even if you are a spartiate even if you are a proper citizen of sparta because uh, your wealth is given your wealth is given to you and is yours but you can't use it and to anything because you must eat with, together with all the other people and uh and you are under constant scrutiny from being for not being decadent and martial like and your wife that you, by the way, you can go to her only uh, in the da- only by sneaking out of the barracks and uh, 
and uh, and back into your house without from the age of twenty to thirty. Okay. From the age of twenty to thirty, because they believe that this is the best way to do to do things to just so you be so to hone the skill of sneaking out, which is very good for a soldier. Um, Although it may have had also, or I'm not, this may or may not have been the intention. It may have had the tangential desire to keep the uh, passion alive by making it so mischievous. And thus bear more children. Uh, of course. And, and you were incentivized to bear more children because I believe if you had four, you were now exempt from military duty. Uh, yes, you were considered uh, to be a father uh, a, f- a father of the state. And you're not exactly exempt from military duty because, but you were not under such a strict... Yes, yes. You did not l- sleep in the barracks anymore. You were... You might say you belong now to the officer class. And the... Just, so I think just to edify the audience Spartan boys I think from the age of seven are all living together in the barracks yes and they're all you know it's kind of a you know doggy dog world over there they are, they're not given enough food so they have to steal food and you know sometimes children die like in Xenophon somebody steals and, and kills one of the kids or whatever uh, so it's very brutal and, it, and, and you are flogged on a, re- on a semi-regular it, basis it doesn't just create strong soldiers it also creates cunning soldiers because they're not just mindless killing machines. They are also they are smart to, at killing. And they to, and they deceitful people. They they are taught to steal, lie, cheat, all the good, all the things that you, all the thing, all the good positive lessons that you want a seven-year-old boy to, to learn. Well, a seven-year-old boy who's going to turn out to be a you know a, a Spartan uh, you know, soldier, soldier who's able to firstly rule his his gigantic um, you know empire, and you know there's. Tremendous amount of helots, you know, some estimates I've seen a million slaves in a country that is fielding perhaps 10,000 infantry. In the Absolutely. Field. And remember that all, oh, and all teenagers, all Spartan teenagers have to go through the Kryptea, which means for a while they are part of, of Sparta's secret police who, um, who go every year, they go, they officially declare war, scare quotes, uh, on the helots and just Kill them indiscriminately. One day a year. One day a year, yes. Oh, you're right. And a day and a night. I, I, I actually, I, I'm not so shocked by this to think it didn't happen, although this has, going back to ancient times, been a subject of controversy if this was real or not. Yes, but... But the secret police did manage to keep the slaves in check, and uh, Spartan society didn't change for hundreds of years. Yes. Um, which, to change track slightly... Um, we do see an interesting theme about how Athenian society changes very often. You know, mm-hmm. read Plato's Republic. Each form of government brings another form. Spartan society is very consistent. And this brings us back to what I mentioned before, that every important political lesson that exists was really learned by the ancient Greeks. There's very little that's totally original today. And that, and that is because uh, the Athenians see... The, the Athenians and the Spartans see the concept of political agon as a, in a very different way. The Spartans see the agon as between individuals within the system. The system must never change, but you must show that you are the most excellent participant in that system. And if you are not, you de- you'll be dead by the age of 20. And if you are not dead, and if by any chance you manage to marry... Your wife is at full 
liberty to take stronger and more capable lovers who would give the state stronger and more capable children than you are, you that, weakling. This is Sparta, as this, opposed to Athens. In Athens, the idea is the agon is between individuals, but it's between individuals as bearers of ideas. And the best ideas, which are, of course are carried by the best people, presumably, uh, should win and should change. And the system should change because the system is uh, is merely a framework for the for the most excellent ideas carried by carried in practice by the most excellent people, and that's why, by the way, all the uh, the critics of democracy uh, portray uh, de uh, demagogues or the de or the de or democratic politicians as very very ignoble people and not very excellent. For example, Aristo Aristophanes was very was an aristocrat who uh, makes makes fun of various uh, Athenian politicians, especially in the uh, in the uh, in in his comedy uh, Cavalrymen, and and Aristophanes is one of three playwrights that we have the full play surviving till today. Yes, we have. Uh, uh, he's the he's the comedic one from the classical age of Athens. He's the, uh, but we also have the, 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 the tragic trio. We have Aeschylus, uh, Sophocles, and Euripides. Aeschylus, of course, invented uh, the concept of, of, uh, of costumes and, multi and multiple voices in, uh, in, a, in a tragedy, more than two. Uh, Sophocles add, uh, added the third uh, actor, which was revolutionary, and, uh, and he also added the idea of uh, in any... To put on some sort of uh, what you may call it um, stage props, Euripides was just was just a good uh, tra a tragic writer, tragic writer. And tell us about uh, your book recommendation for today. My book recommendation is uh, a book by Marie Re by Marie Renault called "The Last of the Wine." It's about a young uh, a young uh, Athenian aristocrat called Alexis who lives through the 30 years war and basically it described the 30 years war as a struggle or an agon between the various city-states and it's also his entire life is part of an agon because first he must prove to his father that he's worthy to be his son because his father originally want him to be exposed because he's very weak when he's born and he and his entire life is him proving that he's good enough to live and uh, and he, at a certain point he goes to the uh, to the Isthmian Games, which are the Panhellenic Games, and compete as a as a as a track racer, and he uh, and he actually wins, and uh, various other th interesting things. And it's also about the competition between the competing systems of Sparta and Athens and other city states in Greece, and it's a very interesting book, which is. And it's and it's of course the first part of a series in Marie Renault's um, exploration of the ancient world. She has a she has a book about Alexander the Great, called the Persian Boy. She has a, a book about various and sundry things. Yeah, just to clarify, you said before the Thirty Years' War. It's talking about the Peloponnesian War. The Peloponnesian War. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it lasts around thirty years. I mean, yes, exactly. Less, I'm okay, sorry. Yeah, of course, not the seventeenth century uh, year within the Holy Roman Empire. Yes, yes. But speaking of which, uh, I think we are very good at um, 
getting everything exactly right. And I do listen to all the podcasts afterwards and we put, uh, update the show notes with corrections. But if you want to feel like a smart aleck, feel free to write into us with anything you feel like we got wrong and we will ascertain and scrutinize. Um, we've mentioned the game several times. So I wonder if you'll permit me to add this quote by John Burnett. Uh, see, he's an early uh, 20th century writer and he's talking about Pythagoras. And I, I've read this uh, various times, several times, many times in fact, and I've always been kind of astounded by this uh, short piece that describes uh, the philosophy. And maybe this will give you some food for thought as well. So let me read this. So in describing Pythagoras, he says, We are strangers in this world, and the body is the tomb of the soul. And yet we must not escape. We must not seek to escape by self-murder, suicide. For we are the chattels of God, who are, our, who are who is our herdsman. And without his command, we have no right to make our escape. In this life, there are three kinds of men. Just as there are three sorts of people who come to Olympic Games. The lowest class is made up of those who come to buy and sell. The next above them are those who compete. Best of all, however, are those who simply, who come simply to look on. The greatest purification of all is therefore disinterested science and is the man who devotes himself to that, the true philosopher who has most effectually released himself from the wheel of birth. Now I want to uh, add a couple of thoughts to this. And one is we're talking about uh, the men competing in the Olympics or in other things. Mm -hmm. And... Um, from this point of view, in fact, that is not the highest level you can get. That is, I mean, that's better than people who come to the to the Olympics to mm -hmm. buy and sell. Those are, you know, the merchant class. Aristotle will have nothing but bad words to say about them. Oh yes, but even these people who are competing, and you know, they're competing for you know beauty and and brawn, you know, and, and they're attractive and so on. They're still not as great as those who simply come to look on. The people who are viewing the great, in other words, the philosophers, and the Greeks are the first in this, um, in the Western world for sure, who are, who are saying, because we Greeks have so much extra you know, food production, but we're not like the Egyptians or the Babylonians who do other things with our surplus production, we produce enough people like Socrates who could make thinking, being, ultimately philosophizing as a full-time job, and thus create arguably the greatest philosophical thinking in the history of the world. Yes, and this is an interesting thing because it's not accurate that Socrates... Socrates, for example, was a stonemason. As a matter of fact, there was uh, there's, uh, there are a few uh, staircases in Athens which, to, which people claim were built by Socrates. But, uh, and he, of course, he had a farm, like most Athenian citizens, to which he actually dedicated m much of his time. As a matter of fact, in the opening of a certain dialogue, I forgot which... I know, I know. Hit me. And uh, he, um, they mention uh, two of the uh, of his interlocutors mentioned that here Socrates coming back from his farm, and uh, and but it's true that as an that as a citizen of certain means, what happened? What happened to the surplus of his farm? What did it enable him to do? He didn't give it all to the guards or to the rulers of the city, as would have happened in Mesopotamia. He didn't go to the taxman or to the king or to the or to the temple, which very often were the same, were one and the same. But it went to him so he can have some extra time to philosophize. Now, now the 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 quote that my co-host uh, graciously 
quoted, this, is, this sums up Pythagoras' idea, but Pythagoras is not a typical Greece, Greek. As a matter of fact, the Greeks, the, the Greeks common citizen eventually uh, where, the, uh, where the Pythagorean schools were established by the help of local tyrants, the citizens of those cities eventually rise up against those tyrants are so offended by those schools which associate with tyranny that they murder the, the Pythagorean philosophers and, and burn the, those schools to a crisp. And so the, by the time of Plato, the Pythagorean school exists as a cryptic school, some sort of something that you accuse your enemies of belonging to if they are not careful. But Socrates invents a new thing. He invents the idea that truth is also objective, not just the truth of merit, but truth of justice. The truth as a truth is something objective that we can observe and find, and that we must observe and find because we don't know it intuitively. And this is the great contribution of Socrates, and an agon which exists not between two men trying to prove uh, to prove to each other that each that one of them is the best or that a third party is the best but an agon within one person's mind uh, who is helped by a friend, by an interlocutor, by a debater. Yes, he who debates and strives with him, but not as a rival, but as a friend who tries to help him judge among all the ideas that they both have in their heads, which one is the best and which one is the most truthful. Yes, although that is a great theory. In, in practice, if you know, in some of the dialogues, some of the people have to be restrained from inflicting bodily harm against him. Oh, absolutely. And eventually, of course, they, they inflict the, the worst bodily harm on Socrates. Yes, yes. Uh, they, Socrates is uh, put on public trial and he's forced to commit suicide at the end of his life. And that is in part why Plato is not thrilled with the whole idea of democracy. Yes. The Athenian democracy voted um, to, to have him executed, just we like they voted to, for example, you know, enslave certain populations that they conquered. Yes, exactly. But that actually leads me to believe that Socrates is a good, loyal Athenian who is loyal to the Athenian constitution of traditional democracy, which is not uh, exactly a, which is not exactly what. Uh, so, let, so let me make a counterpoint, and I, I actually agree with you in your vision of of Socrates. But you have Plutarch, I think, putting in Socrates's mouth. Uh, he's you know, but he's living you know four or five hundred years later. He says that Socrates had said that I'm a citizen of the world. And for me, that's not something that a good loyal citizen says. Now, Diagonis is famously associated with that line. And he was such a weirdo that I have, I have, no, I have no doubt he would say something like that. Because Diagonis believes that states are artificial and, and all artificial things are bad. Socrates is far from believing that. First of all, he doesn't think that states are necessarily artificial. And he doesn't believe that all artificial things are necessarily bad. And... The thing is, Socrates, we said, was forced to poison himself. No, he was put in. He was put in a prison, which was so pathetic in the in its ability to hold uh, prisoners that he could easily have escaped. As a matter of fact, both Plato and Xenophon, when they are describing the last few hours in the in the life of Socrates, press that that some of the best and greatest citizens of Athens were more than willing to pay off the guards. And, and make him escape. And he takes, and the, and, and the cup of poison, the hemlock, is not being thrust down his throat by the god. The god gives it to him at the end of a very agreeable meal, uh, and, he, and he takes it, and he drinks it himself. 
And his last words were, "We owe, uh, we owe a rooster to ask to to, to Aesculapius, the the god of medicine. Please, Harry, Harry, do not tarry in paying it." Now, of course, he refers jokingly to the poison as medicine. He say, "Oh, I just took my medicine, so I have. So you you'll have to suck to give." To give uh, to, to sacrifice to the god of medicine. Mm. Well, I think you're making an additional point and a different point that uh, he was very stoic about this. He was and, very and, stoic and he was very low. And his point is, and, and he believes also that his death will either result in him going to some sort of paradise, which is good, or him having an eternal sleep, which is also good. Yeah. So whatever come what may, he'll be in, he'll be well off and and much better off. Then living the rest of his life in exile, which is such a terrible fate that he can't even contemplate it. All right. So in this respect, he's like the other person, and in his is probably the second most famous trial of all time. The most famous trial being you know, Jesus, and in that sense, that he, that he's accepting his death upon himself to the point that he in fact is inflicted upon himself. But he he's accepting it, for, it in the same way that he is. But he accepts it for his own sake, for his own happiness, not for the sake of anybody else's. Ah. And that comes, he's and not thereby trying, comes the difference between the pagan and the Christian. He's pagan. not trying to be a martyr. He's not trying to make the world a better place by taking the poison. He's trying, he, he's choosing the best options he had before him. And he's obeying the law of the state, which you mentioned that he's saying, well, he has a, you know, ability to escape. And it was almost thought perhaps that the, the, the court that adjudicated the, his death in fact, wanted it to escape. They wanted it to be, you know, gone it, with the whole was, issue. It was a common procedure. We, they, 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 they try, they, they send somebody to death, but they give him, uh, but, but they give uh, him a stay of one day, one day to one week, uh, wink, wink, nod, nod, to, uh, to, to, get, to get out and never come back again. And after a few years, they might vote again on the issue and, and allow him to come back and rescind the sentence. But he says, no, 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 no. The laws of Athens says that if, if the assembly votes on something, if the, if the uh, council and the assembly vote on something and judge someone, the, all the citizens have the authority and the duty to enforce, the, to enforce what was voted upon. And I'm a citizen of Athens. As such, my duty is to fulfill the duty that was given to me by the council, which is to poison myself. So I would rather die a good citizen of Athens, obeying the law of Athens than anything else. Fascinating. And just to make a final point, in terms of seeing things in ancient times that we see today, you often see today when they're trying a murder or somebody that they're going to bring, they bring the family members and they cry and, you know, they bewail and the media is sympathetic. That's very common in, in, in ancient Greece, and Greek trials. And Socrates makes the point that he didn't find it edifying to bring his, you know, the crying wife and children to uh, garner sympathy towards him. So As he, a matter of fact, has, when, his, when his wife and children come to the uh, come to, to greet him in his cell before he kills himself, and they and of course cry, he tell he he comforts his wife, which by the way they never treated him very nicely, perhaps with good reason. He was not a very good provider or or a very good husband by all accounts. Or good looking. Oh, good looking. I'm sorry about that. And uh, no, no, he said about himself. No, yeah, that he's the yeah, ugliest exactly. man in Athens. He joked about it a lot. And to his sons, he tells. And to his sons, he says that it's not becoming uh, young citizens like them to cry like women. So that's. I'm sorry. Those those were his words. So he essentially said he essentially believes in the Athenian ethos to the end. 
and he believes and basically he tells his friends that he didn't want that he doesn't want his children his sons to cry because it's not proper for young citizens to cry because the the uh, the edicts of the polis which was which was properly pro properly voted upon by all citizens and by all legitimate bodies was carried out this is not a cause of uh, of grief it's of course sad that the law was misapplied and that the assembly was wrong in its judgment but the fact that he's that he's fulfilling that edict is not a cause for grief yes and here and we see a violation of the freedom that we were discussing present in ancient Greece uh, which and our future episode which civilization are we going to be speaking about in terms of the origin of freedom well I would like to speak about the Germanics because the Germanics uh, uh, a thing read in tooth and claw but they have something that the Greeks don't have which is free association the idea of a state that is created from that is not just run from the bottom up by the citizens but actually is have to carry the favor of the citizens to being created continuously and that's something we will talk about it about next week and this is all for this week we shall see you again next week. And for now, remember, more or Tehran. More or Tehran, indeed.